0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. Right before I went left for sabbatical, I began the Book of Jeremiah. Now, we're not going to go through the entire book. There there are fifty-two chapters in Jeremiah. And as you know, uh, Ephesians has six chapters, and I took two years to cover it. And so if we did that, you know, we would never get out of Jeremiah. But I am just going to take snapshots of this book that are, I think, representative of the major movements of Jeremiah. And I'm going to wrap up the study of Jeremiah by the end of this year, by the end of December, okay? So by way of review, just so that remind you of where we've been in our study of Jeremiah Jeremiah was this prophet who was called to serve God during one of the darkest chapters in Israel's history where sin and idolatry run rampant, worshiping all kinds of other gods, and it came to the point where the people of God were hardly recognizable as God's people. And despite repeated warnings, Israel refused to repent. And as a result, Jeremiah had to live himself to experience the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of God's holy city and the captivity of his holy people to the foreign land of Babylonia, uh, of Babylon. And so most prophetic books focus almost completely on the writings of the prophet. But what is unique about Jeremiah is it is as much autobiographical as it is prophetic. So we have the writings of Jeremiah, but we also see the life of Jeremiah, the consequences to the things that he had to say and what he suffered because of his ministry. And so what we're doing throughout the series is jumping back and forth between his writings, his sayings, his oracles, as well as his life and what happened to him as a prophet, as a result of the ministry that God had called him to. And one of the things I said in a previous message was that there was this great king named Josiah who became king at the age of eight and ushered in one of the greatest reforms that Israel had ever known. So he, through his leadership, he tore down all of these places of idolatry and turned the hearts of people back to God, restoring the prominence of the word of God in temple worship. And so sacrifices were being offered once again. And basically it was in the 13th year of King Josiah's reign that Jeremiah began his ministry. So in essence, what we could say was this. Jeremiah became a key mouthpiece to the reforms of Josiah. And the turnaround seemed amazing. Pagan worship was done with. All of those prostitutes and sorcerers were killed. Once again, temple worship was there. But despite the impressiveness of this religious reform, God commanded Jeremiah in chapter 7 to stand at the entrance to the temple and rebuke his people as they were coming to worship. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 3 to 4 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, what God was saying was call these people out because they are so smug in the fact that they think they're right with God again. Just because temple worship has resumed and that there are services running once again. And he says, what the message was this was that the reforms of Josiah were needed, they were important, but they were also incomplete the hearts of the people had not truly changed to the extent that God demanded. Eugene Peterson, I read this quote in one of the earlier messages. He says, the reform was accomplished. Everything that a king's commands could do was done. Conspicuous crime was stopped. Superstitious religion was sent packing. Immoral worship was banned, but getting rid of evil does not make people good. It didn't take Jeremiah long to realize that the reform was only skin deep. Everything had changed, but nothing had changed. The outward changes had been enormous. The inward changes were imperceptible. Their religious performance was impeccable. Their everyday life was rotten. The outside is a lot easier to reform than the inside. Going to the right church and saying the right words is a lot easier than working out a life of justice and love among the people you work and live with. And it's with that tone that I want to carry us fast forward into chapter 18 of Jeremiah and see what's happened in this part of the story. And so the scripture reading that I'm going to do is going to come from Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 17. We're going to look at the rest of the chapter in a little bit. But for the scripture reading, this is what I want to read, starting in verse 1. And it says this, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house. And there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say that is in vain. We will follow our own plans and will every one act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore thus says the Lord, Ask among the nations who has heard the like of this The virgin Israel has done a horrible thing. Does the snow of Lebanon leave the crags of Syrian? Do the mountain waters run dry, the cold flowing streams? But my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. They made them stumble in their ways, in the ancient roads, and to walk into side roads, not the highway, making their land a horror, a thing to be hissed at forever. Everyone who passed by it is horrified and shakes his head. Like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back, not my face, in the day of their calamity. Let's pray. God, these are heavy words, difficult words, not just to understand but to accept. But let your perfect love and your perfect will and your perfect truth win our hearts over, not to what we want, not to these false images of you that we erect in our hearts, but to see the true and living God that stands before us this day to show us your heart toward us. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. By this point in Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah has been prophesying for years. And these years have taken a very heavy toll on this prophet's heart because despite his best efforts preaching these words of warning and calls to repentance, the people stubbornly refused to amend their ways. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that by this point in time, Jeremiah had all but given up hope on Israel. He was sick of it. He was tired of this ministry. And I think basically Jeremiah thought, there is just no point to this. Every day I go to Jerusalem and share your words, God, and nobody listens. Nobody listens. And so in a moment of raw honesty, this is what God confesses. This is what Jeremiah confesses to God. In verses 19 to 23, Hear me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of my adversaries. Should good be repaid with evil, yet they have dug a pit for my life. Remember how I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Therefore deliver up their children to famine. Give them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed. May their men meet death by pestilence, their youths be struck down by the sword in battle. May a cry be heard from their houses when you bring the plunderers suddenly upon them, for they have dug a pit to take me and laid snares for my feet. Yet you, O Lord, know all their plotting to kill me. Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. Do you hear the heart of Jeremiah here? He is at the point of giving up. He has come to the conclusion that Israel is hopelessly lost, irredeemable. He points out to God, You know how I was, God, in my younger years. I used to actually intercede for these people, I used to actually pray mercy down on them and say, God, don't do this. Don't judge them like this. Show mercy, show grace. But he says to God, I don't think that way anymore, God. Kill them. Kill them all. Burn the whole house down. Let it burn because I don't even care anymore. Let these people die because they are a stiff-necked, stubborn people. And the truth is, God, they are never going to change. They're so arrogant. They're so wicked. There's just no hope for them. So God, let the rain of fire fall and take these people out. He's basically saying, what's the point of delaying your judgment any longer, God? Don't forgive them. Let the punishment begin. Bring the sword. This is the state of Jeremiah's heart, the condition that he's in, when God says to him, Jeremiah, you need to go on a little field trip here. (laughs) You need to go somewhere for me because I need to show you something that you really need to see. As my prophet. And he says, Go to the local potter's house, and you just sit there and watch the guy work. And as you watch him work, you're gonna hear my word come to you. I'm gonna tell you something that you need to hear. And so Jeremiah just goes to the local potter's house as he's spinning a piece of clay on his wheel. And he just sits there and watches. It's got to be one of the weird, socially awkward moments, right? This guy's like, why are you here? He goes, I don't know. Just work. Just do your thing and just act like I'm not here. And as Jeremiah watches this potter trying to make something out of this lump of clay, something interesting begins to unfold. The clay is resisting the potter. It's fighting the potter. And he's trying to make something, but it's not working the way the potter intended. It basically, the way it's described is the vessel became ruined. It wasn't going to work, whatever he was going to make. The clay is not cooperating with the potter. And what the potter does next is the whole reason why God tells Jeremiah to go to the potter's house that day. Because the potter doesn't take that clay, and in a moment of anger, chuck it against the wall, <laughs> say, "Forget this. I'm done for today." Instead, with this great patience and forbearance, the potter just takes the clay, puts it into a lump again, and he begins to remould it into something totally different that he wasn't originally intending to make. God is basically saying, do you see what's going on here, Jeremiah? Do you see what's happening? The imagery of the pottery and clay, the pottery and clay is used a lot in Scripture. It's found both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, often to try to illustrate something about our relationship with God. And in almost every time that it's used, the potter and the clay, the message is that God has total control over us and he can do whatever he wants to do with us. That's almost always the message of the metaphor of the potter and the clay. Isaiah 45, verse 9. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? He's clumsy. He doesn't know what he's doing. Romans 9:20. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? So this is the theme that comes out over and over again with this pottery metaphor. God can do whatever he wants because we are the clay. And there's no doubt about it that there's part of that truth in this Jeremiah 18 passage. Because in verse 6, he says, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. But here's the interesting thing. The imagery of the potter and the clay is more nuanced in Jeremiah 18 than it is in any of the other passages that talk about it in scripture because in verses 7 to 10 it says this if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it and if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it and if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build up and plant it and if it does evil in my sight not listening to my voice then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it this is interesting This is what God says to Jeremiah. You know what? I do actually have a plan A for your life. I do have something that I'm trying to make of your life, but by bringing him to the potter's house that day, he says, but you know, you have a part in it to play too. It's possible for you to rebel against me. Your response to my command is part of the story that gets written in your life. And this is one of the great mysteries is it is so easy to hear about this potter and clay and say, therefore, what's the point? Like, whatever we do, God has a will and he's going to get it done no matter what. So it's very easy to adopt a fatalistic posture to our life. It doesn't really matter what we do because in the end of the day, God gets his way. And what in the mystery of what God says is, I do get my way. I do accomplish my will. But in this difficult to understand mystery of how it works, our response becomes part of that story. He says you actually, by your obedience or disobedience, can affect what that final outcome is going to look like. Look at what it says in the NIV in verses 11 to 12. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. This is the kind of fatalistic attitude that I'm talking about. The Israelites say, We're going to do what we're going to do. We can't change. This is just how life plays out. I'm sorry, God. Things are not going to change on our end. And what God makes clear is that is not a valid excuse, even in my sovereignty. You cannot hide behind some fatalistic outlook of life and say things are going to happen the way they're going to happen. God, I'm sorry. God says, no, there is a responsibility that you will bear. A part that you're called to play and the choices that you make in response to what I'm commanding you have a profound impact on your destiny. In one of the great mysteries of life, God reveals that he is in total control but that our response to him has an effect on the ultimate plans that will play out in our lives. Christopher Wright summarizes God's word to Israel like this. I offered you every chance to bring about a different future from the one that is staring you in the face. I've been patient and open, willing to adjust my plans to your choices, like a potter working with changeable clay. Even now, for the last time, I warn you of what lies ahead and urge you to take the necessary steps to avert it. If you will not, then the full force of my judgment will fall upon you, as Jeremiah had predicted for years. But you will never be able to say I didn't warn you or that there, were no, there was no alternative. There was, and you refused it. You know, this is what I find so interesting, is I think so much in our view of God, we think of him as the rigid one, the uncompromising one, and we're always the one trying to bend over backwards to please God, but God sheds a light on that whole scenario because you know the truth is, it's almost always the other way. I am willing to work with you. I am willing to work even with your disobedience. I am willing to be flexible and bend over to reach out to you, to rescue you, but you are the stubborn one. You are the one that hardens your heart and say, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, God. If you want to work around that, so be it. God says, you are the one with a stubborn heart that refuses to bend to my, what I want for your life, what I desire for you. There's something beautiful about this passage, but there's also a warning here. For those of you who may feel that you have so gone another direction that you're irredeemable or hopeless, God says, no, not at all. I can still reshape your life into something beautiful. It may not be exactly what was intended because of your rebellion. That's not going to happen, but it's still something beautiful and it's something awesome. But he also says, you can keep turning your back on me and keep shoving me away and that door may close for you one day. And you've got to recognize when you've been given a moment of opportunity to turn to me and heed the warnings that I've given you in your life. Another lesson that I see in this visit to the Potter's House is this. We are God's workmanship. Constantly being shaped and reshaped by his loving hands. Let me say this. Whether you acknowledge it or not, all of us are using some kind of measuring stick to try to get a sense of the purpose and meaning and the value of our life. Whether it's family or career or wealth or friendships or whatever it might be, We're all reaching for some goals. We all have some way of trying to gauge whether we feel like our life is on track or not. You know, um, during the sabbatical, I I purposely went out of my way to spend some time with my friend Young, who spoke at our retreat in the summer. I think we all need to have friends like that that don't think so much of us, (laughs) you know, because everywhere I go, you know, I'm like a pastor or whatever, but I'm just Steve to him, you know. And so when I meet with Young, I can just tell him the most honest, raw stuff that's in my heart and share with him. And so several times during the sabbatical, I had those moments with Young. And, you know, one of the things that I was confessing to him as I was trying to process some of the things that I'm feeling in my heart was I didn't really stop to think about the burden of the fact that in my 40s, I pretty much uh, made a major career change of being a missionary and a doctor to becoming a pastor here in America. And I realized that one of the things that kind of bothers me is that midlife career change aspect of being a pastor here at ICC because I told them again in a moment of raw honesty, I said, like, when I look at your ministry young, when I look at the ministry of my brother, when I look at all of my friends that we were in college together, like, I look at your churches and they just seem so much more developed than mine, you know, like, and I feel like I'm behind the ball, you know, that I'm trying to do this in my 40s, but you guys were doing this in your 20s, and I feel like I'm still pastoring a church that feels in many ways like a church plant. You know, we we barely have our missions program up and running, and we're still trying to really figure out small groups and all of these things, and, uh, and I told them, like, I'm looking toward my 50s real soon, and I go, sometimes I just feel tired, and I feel like I should have started this like a decade ago. But in some ways, I don't, I don't feel like I had the energy to do all of this, you know? And, you know, of course, he kind of put me in my place, you know, and say, what are you talking about here? And kind of help me to see a more faith-based perspective on it. But I, I, I realized that this is how all of us are, you know? We, we kind of try to find some measuring stick by which we can feel like my life is worthwhile. I, things are going well. And... Here's the thing is, for many of you in this room, you struggle with that a lot. Whether it's about your family, your marriage, your children, you feel like you made some real mistakes with your career choices. Some of you are struggling financially at a point where you should be financially secure. You're not, and it's too shameful to mention how deep in debt you are. And it's very easy to focus on all of this and go, where did my life go wrong? What's happening here? This is not how I thought my life was going to unfold. This is not where I thought I would be in my life. But you know what? When I look at this passage in Jeremiah 18, what I see is this. I see that God has a singular focus on us. And it's not about how high we climb on the corporate ladder, what type of income bracket you'll ever achieve in your life, what great kids you raise, or how awesome your marriage is. These are all wonderful blessings that we ought to seek from God. But I think when we look at this, God's focus is singular. He cares about your heart. He cares about what is being formed in your heart. And I want to say this. There are some of you that outwardly, from a worldly perspective, have achieved great heights. You're building your dream houses. You've climbed the top of your company, and you're doing great. You have great kids that everyone praises. Everyone looks and thinks you have an ideal marriage. But I want to say that God may grieve over you and your life. And on the other hand, there are some of you that feel like your life is a train wreck. You feel like a derailed train going, I don't understand any of this. And yet you may be exactly where God wants you. And he may be smiling over you because God's focus is singular. He cares about your heart, what he is forming out of your life, what you are becoming as a person. Jeremiah 4, verse 3 to 4 says this. This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And I want to ask you that this morning. Can can you really be honest with me? Is this the framework by which you're interpreting your life? Because I think the truth is, even if we're Christians, it's not the truth is the outward circumstances get us down a lot more than what's happening here, isn't it? God, fix my marriage. God, fix my spouse. God, fix my kids. God, fix my career. And we're all like on that pursuit to think that that's what's going to give us happiness. But God says, I am patiently and relentlessly on the project of shaping you into the image of my son. And whether the circumstances that surround your life go the way you expect it or not, that's not the important detail in God's perspective. It is Christ in you. It is the fact that either every day by the things you face in life, you are becoming more alive to God or more dead to him, more obedient to his will or more stubbornly resistant to it. That's the singular measuring stick by which God weighs the value of a life. And so where do you stand this day as you think about your life? Do you understand what God's heart is toward you? That Whatever you're going through in this season of life, are you asking the right questions? How does God want to change me through this? What does God want to teach me through this? How can I grow through this experience? Because that's what it means to be the clay that surrenders to the master hand of the potter that says, do with me as you will. Shape me into whatever you desire of my life. Eugene Peterson says this, and we'll close with this. Speaking from the voice of God, he writes, how can I get them to see that I am working right now, silently and invisibly, but surely and eternally in their lives and in their history?" How can I get them to see the connections between what they are doing now and what they will be in 10 years and 20 years? No one has ever been able to make a clay pot that is just a clay pot. Every pot is also an art form. There is no pottery that, besides being useful, does not also show evidence of beauty. Pottery is artistically shaped, designed, painted, glazed, fired. It is one of the most functional items in life. It is also one of the most beautiful Jeremiah had seen potters at work all his life, but today he saw something else. He saw God at work making a people for his glory, a people of God, persons created in the image of God, necessary but not only necessary, each one also beautiful. God needs and presses, pushes and pulls. The creative work starts over again, patiently, skillfully. God doesn't give up. God doesn't throw away what is spoiled. Let's pray. I think it's one of the great indictments of the church today how little we as the people of God focus on this inner life of walking with God. And instead, God becomes like this divine genie who is there to grant us every wish that we think will make us happy. I don't know. Some of you are actually living really good lives, career going great, family going great. But I think some of you need to acknowledge I feel like I'm pushing God away with every success I attain in life. I keep him at arm's length and say, don't touch this, God. This is mine. And you've made an idol of your family. You've made an idol of your career and your heart has grown cold and the world will praise you. The world will applaud you, but God may look down and grieve. And say, this is not what I wanted to make of your life. This is not success as I see it. My heart breaks over you. I weep over you. because in the world's eyes, you look like you won, but in my heart, you have lost everything. And then there are some of you who feel like you're broken and damaged goods, and you think it's over for me. I see no way out of this. It's hopeless. I am like that ruined clay. God would say to you, see what Jeremiah saw at the potter's house that day. Yeah, it didn't go as he wanted, but he patiently sat at that wheel and reworked that clay until he could make something beautiful out of that brokenness and make us whole. God's interest in you is singular. The inner life, the heart, what he is forging in you and what he desires out of you this day is simply a heart of surrender. Here I am, God. Mold me and shape me and make me into your image. Do what you must do to accomplish your will in my life. And in that surrender, we find the will of God for us.